Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Nurse practitioners in Ancaster are providing care and raising eyebrows. Also, Upper Stony Creek stinks again, tackling auto theft, big news for Trump and Biden, the Taylor Swift effect, and the OG sports celebrity couple. Thanks for subscribing to the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. A new healthcare clinic in Ancaster is being run by nurse practitioners who charge patients for a wide variety of services, including uh, checkups, which go for about $240. Uh, Holistic Solutions NP says the payments are legal because nurse practitioners aren't specifically mentioned in the Canada Health Act and can't bill OHIP. When we spoke with the Ontario Health Coalition earlier this week, Executive Director Natalie Mera had a different take. The floodgates have opened. The rhetoric of the government is always, oh, you'll never pay with your credit card. But, I mean, they're allowing it all over the place. And they're privatizing health care like we've never seen before. And, you know, we've got to stop it. Otherwise, we're going to lose public Medicare. Chris Savard is a nurse practitioner with Holistic Solutions Nurse Practitioners in Ancaster and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Rick. Uh, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Uh, your reasoning for opening this clinic? So our, our reason for opening it is uh, to create access for people. Um, right now, there are 5,000 people on the wait list uh, with Healthcare Connect in Hamilton. Um, it's projected by 2026, there'll be 100,000 people. And, and I, I want to be clear that um, we, we would prefer to be funded by the government. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, despite the best efforts by our, the Nurse Practitioners Association of Ontario, um, you know, we haven't really had any movement on new funding models for nurse practitioners to enable us to be able to um, provide the care we need. We need to have uh, funding mechanisms that will enable us to uh, be covered by OHIP. Um, and there are many clinics like this across Ontario. I think the nurse practitioners are um, saying, you know, this is another option we can provide for people. And um, we're hopeful that the government will uh, fund us under OHIP at some point. Um, but um, but we, we just feel the need is so great. This is a stopgap measure to help uh, with the primary health care crisis. What are your patients saying about it? I, I am overwhelmed by the support of the community. Um, also, uh, patients calling the clinic saying, we support you guys. Um, I, 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 like, it almost brings me to tears, people saying, I st- we stand with you. Um, we can't believe that you guys won't be covered by OHIP. Um, and, and that's the question people keep asking. Why not they just let you bill OHIP? Why not they just let you be funded um, you know, to be able to, uh, to bill the government for that service so it'll be publicly funded? Um, and, then, and that's the question we keep getting asked. And, and I, I really don't know the answer to that. And I, I would encourage you to speak with uh, Michelle Acorn, the head of the Nurse Practitioners Association, um, who has a lot more uh, information than, than myself. Um, you know, that's who we rely on to be our voice in Ontario for nurse practitioners is the Nurse Practitioners Association. Um, but um, but I, I feel that, um, you know, we're providing a need and, and our clients are... are happy with the care and, and people are saying they're, they're prioritizing their health and they, they just can't wait anymore. The Ontario Health Coalition says what you're doing is illegal. You obviously disagree. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, based on, uh, I, I would, uh, I'm not a legal expert, but based on um, advice from um, our associate, Nurse Practitioners Association, um, or you, you could also speak with the um, Canadian Nurses Protective Society about this. Um, you know, it, it is completely legal because the uh, 
Canada Health Act actually doesn't mention nurse practitioners. Um, so, um, so that's 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 basically where we get our um, information from. Chris Safard is a nurse practitioner with Holistic Solutions Nurse Practitioners in Ancaster, providing a variety of services to patients for a fee, and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, some will say, hey, listen, this is a two-tier system. There's people who can't afford to pay for health care. What do you say to that? Um, I, I, unfortunately, this is not the system we chose, um, you know, but uh, I, I guess, unfortunately, at this point, there are people who don't have to wait who will be able to pay and 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 we we hope this will change that uh, we can have funding so that everyone can have access to health care how many patients do you have and do you plan to grow so as of right now we have uh we, we keep growing we're getting a lot of calls um because there's just so much support um i think we're up to 30 people now um i imagine um, we will have uh, another location as we expand up to 3,200 people um, we'll have capacity for. And it, it's unreal, the nurse practitioners that are wanting to join uh, the clinic. I keep getting calls saying, I, you know, I, I want to help. Um, what can I do to help with this clinic so we can create more access to healthcare for people? Is part of this to ultimately, in part, pressure the provincial governments to e- enable nurse practitioners to bill OHIP? As a nurse practitioner, I always feel it's our duty to advocate for the public. And um, we feel that it's best to provide care while we're waiting. Um, but we hope that the government will um, you know, work with our provincial association, the Nurse Practitioners Association, to negotiate, uh, negotiate new funding models to enable us to provide the care that people need. We have a couple more minutes with Chris Savard, nurse practitioner at Holistic Solutions Nurse Practitioners in Ancaster, offering a variety of services for fee to patients at their Ancaster clinic. There is obviously, as you heard in in the clip that we played from the Ontario Health Coalition and others who are pushing back against this. What is your reaction to that pushback? Uh, I think that a lot of people are just confused. Um, And... um, you know, I, I'm I'm not I, I don't understand all of the pushback. I mean, it, it seems that um, for the most part, we've had a lot of support. Um, uh, you know, and and there's a lot of frustration from the public um, that you know they they don't understand why uh, we can provide all of these amazing services. Nurse practitioners can diagnose. We're a primary healthcare provider. We provide a broad range of services. And, uh, you know, why why we don't have the funding we need to help people that, um, and give them the service they need. And so that's kind of, I, I don't understand where the uh, um, everything else is uh, coming from. Do you expect a call from Ontario's health ministry to say, hey, shut her down? You know, I, I don't uh, I don't know what will happen. Um, I, uh, I guess we'll we'll see. Uh, I don't know how that would be legal, um, but um but you know, at, at uh, I, I haven't uh, I haven't had any contact, um, and I mean that that would uh, involve shutting down um, probably thirty or more clinics in Ontario. Um, you know, I am actually blown away by the uh, attention that our clinic has had compared to the many others that are in operation, um, advertising on the on Google. Um, but there's been uh, I, I don't, so I'm, I'm curious as to uh, the movement that's happening here, but. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know what, what will happen. I'm, I would rather that the ministry say, this is very innovative. Um, why don't we fund you? Because we can quickly get people access to care. And I think that would be a, a, a reaction I would hope for.
It certainly has uh, made some waves. Chris, thank you so much for the time this morning. Thank you very much, Rick. Take care. You too. Chris Savard is a nurse practitioner at Holistic Solutions Nurse Practitioners in Ancaster. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Last summer, you'll remember this story. Residents of an Upper Stony Creek neighborhood were forced to endure a nasty odor coming from the GFL landfill. And so fast forward a few months, and they are now renewing their call for action as this stink is once again starting to waft from the site. City Councilor Brad Clark says he has no legal control over the provincially regulated and supervised landfill. We continue to advocate to the province. This has to stop. It's unacceptable. Um, no one can seem to explain how all of a sudden we have this issue after 20 years of operation. Kathleen Morrison lives near this landfill and joins us on GMH on 900 CHML. Kathleen, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm okay. What's going on? It's back. <laughs> we uh, we had a nice little break there for about a month or two around Christmas time. Um, there were a couple of days that, you know, we could smell it, but for the most part, it seemed to be taken care of. Um, and it's been coming back now for the last two or three weeks. It's an almost daily thing again. How would you uh, describe the smell? So to me, it smells like uh, cat spray. If you've ever walked into a building, you know, that just cat urine, cat spray, it's got a bit of a sulfury smell to it, kind of natural gas smell. Um, it's, it's really bad. And is this all day, every day, or does it kind of come and go? Uh, it seems to come and go, but once again, we seem to be noticing it the most at night and in the early mornings, um, which is incredibly strange because they claim they're not doing anything at those times to cause it. Um, but that's definitely when it's the most noticeable. So you could be smelling this stink while you're eating, while you're inside the house, while you're outside the house. This must have a, a big impact not only on your physical health, but your mental health as well. Oh, it's, I mean, it's been 10 months now. The The impact that it's having on the mental health of thousands of people is incredible. And, and now we're bracing for another summer because we've been told that it, it won't be like that again. But we're seeing that, obviously, they don't have this under control. So we, we actually have a Facebook group called Shut Down the Stony Creek Dump. And uh, the, people are getting loud again because it's coming into houses again. So what is the company saying that's operating this landfill? What answers have they given you? So we have a, a system here that we are sending through reports. Um, and GFL is to respond to those reports within 10 days. Unfortunately, that's not happening. When they do respond, though, the responses that we're getting are the majority say, well, the wind wasn't blowing in the right direction. It couldn't have been us. Or, you know, we investigated immediately and we didn't smell anything. They are taking no responsibility at this point. So does that now lead you to contact the Ministry of the Environment or maybe the Ministry of Labor? Uh, we actually contact the ministry every time we put through a report, um, but we're we're done now. We uh, we're putting together some protests. Um, we're going to start regular, constant um, pop up protests. There won't be much warning to them. Our first one's going to be March first, and then after that, there will be no warning. We'll just we'll just start protesting daily. And this will be um, outside the front gates of the landfill. Correct. Yep. Uh, we've also been in contact with some legal counsel um, because somebody has to help us. 
So from the city perspective, and just as a reminder to our audience, Kathleen Morrison lives near the GFL landfill uh, on Upper Stony Creek. And for for months now, they've been uh, enduring a nasty odor. There was, uh, you know, a bit of a respite during the Christmas period, but it, it is back. From the city perspective, it says it's going to conduct its own air monitoring at the site this spring. Too little, too late, or at least... Uh, at least applauding that the city is kind of trying to figure out what's going on? I would really like to applaud the city, except that this was supposed to happen months ago. And we haven't been told that it's coming in, in the spring. We just keep getting pushed off. So as much as I would like to give the city the credit for that, I, when we when we see it happen, we'll believe it because it's months overdue. What do you want to see happen? <laughs> we just want the smell to go away, you know, like we get that they're not going to close this place down and that this waste has to go somewhere, but it shouldn't be at the expense of our health. Um, there's no need for this horrible smell. And if they can't get it under control, they need to stop taking more waste until they can. Not to mention the pile. I don't know if you've driven around there lately at all, but you can see that dump for kilometers away. It towers over the houses and the businesses. How concerned are you and others in your neighborhood about your property values? Because this has got to have an impact. Oh, they've tanked. They've tanked. People who bought these houses, I mean, we're talking about, you know, close to million-dollar houses, and people can't sell them because they've, it, the property values are destroyed, which is part of why we've, we've went after legal counsel, because there has to be compensation for this. Any sort of dollar figure that you're thinking? Oh, goodness, who knows at this point? I mean... <sighs> We don't even know the full damage that that this is going to do in the end, right? And you mentioned your Facebook uh, page as well, the group. And uh, how many people have joined it? How many people are, you know, generally impacted by this in this neighborhood? Uh, We have about, I think we have about 1.5 thousand people. um, And and we have over 5,000 who signed the petition that we did in the summer. Um, and, and we weren't able to get to everybody in the neighborhood. I mean, we were going door to door. So if we had more people doing it, we probably could have doubled that number easy. Convinced that your protests are going to maybe move the needle? Uh, I mean, money talks, right? If they can't get business in there because we're blocking the gates, (laughs) hopefully that'll push them to actually do something about it. Kathleen, I appreciate the time. Uh, We will certainly reconvene this discussion closer to uh, March the 1st when uh, the first protest is going to happen, and uh, we'll go from there. Thanks uh, again for joining us today. Thank you so much. Kathleen Morrison is a resident who lives in Upper Stony Creek in this neighborhood that is enduring, for lack of a better term, this horrible smell that has been coming out of GFL Landfill for months now and pleading with not only the company but... The provincial government, the city of Hamilton, to do something about it. And, well, from their standpoint, not much is being done. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Our poll question yesterday was, have you ever had your vehicle stolen? And 73% of you said no, but 27% of you said yes. So I'm sure, especially that 27%, keenly aware of what was happening in Ottawa yesterday, where politicians, police, border agents... Uh, Auto industry experts, private sector partners all gathered together for this national summit on auto theft. And from what we heard from the feds yesterday was that about 90,000 cars are stolen every year in Canada. And that results in about a billion dollars in cost to Canadian insurance policyholders and taxpayers, UNI. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says his government is considering more stringent penalties for car thieves. First things first, we need to stop these criminals who are part of gangs and organized crime. As you know, Ontario is one of the hotspots for auto theft. So last week we announced $121 million to support law enforcement in the province. We're also looking at further strengthening penalties for anyone who participates in auto theft. All right, let's spend the next five minutes with our guest, Brian Kingston, president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Brian, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. What was your biggest takeaway yesterday? Well, uh, I definitely agree with the the Prime Minister that we do need to strengthen the criminal code, and we're going to be looking for real action on that. We learned yesterday from the Ontario Provincial Police that over 60% of convicted car thieves are getting sentences of less than six months. So we have a problem in this country where the the risk-reward imbalance is very much in favour of organised crime groups. Canada has been targeted because high profits can be generated, But the risk of prosecution is very low. So we've got to get that right. And we're going to have to close off our ports if we want to get rid of this market and and effectively deter groups from this activity in Canada. Those are two big ticket items and they take some time. How quickly can we do those? I think the most immediate action that could be taken is at the border. We know that the Port of Montreal is an avenue for these vehicles to leave the country The Canada Border Service Agency has been given additional funding. It will take some time, for example, to buy new x-ray machines and scanners, install technology. But at an absolute minimum, we need to dedicate more resources to inspecting outbound cargo. And that will make an immediate difference. And it will deter these groups from continuing this activity here. Do organized crime groups have a leg up on police and a leg up on automakers in terms of the technology that they can get around? They are highly sophisticated. This is transnational groups that are putting huge amounts of money behind car theft. And so they're investing in technologies to get past security systems, and they're doing everything possible to ensure that uh, they make this as difficult as, as imaginable for law enforcement agencies to track down who's ultimately responsible for this theft. So, yeah, they are they're very sophisticated. And that's why it's going to take a, a real effort. Our law enforcement agencies need more resources. They are stretched. We need to see more auto theft teams like the one that's been established in Ontario. It's had some early success, but we're going to have to have more of that, more in, uh, funding for those models if we're going to get at this issue quickly. Brian, Brian Kingston is the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHMLs. We continue to chat about yesterday's National Summit on Auto Theft. What are automakers doing to beef up security? Automakers are constantly updating vehicle security systems, but it's a game of cat and mouse. These groups are, are always trying to find new ways to get past these systems and they're introducing new technologies all the time. So uh, there is going to be no single silver bullet to addressing this. Um, It's also really important to to note that this technology is advancing so rapidly that even when new systems come in place, think about when we moved from the keyless ignition to the key fob, that immediately got rid of hot wiring, which was uh, a, a real issue for vehicle thieves. Uh, But then what happened is is technology was developed to find ways to get past the fob. So when new technologies are introduced, you may reduce theft for, you know, three, six months, but then they find a way around it. So that's why we've been really pushing government to focus on the core issue, which is 
organized crime. We got 30 seconds. Federal government yesterday announced $28 million to help tackle the overseas export of these stolen vehicles. Is that a good start? It's a good start, but I would definitely characterize it as a start. Um, you know, we're, we're going to have to beef up the security at all of our ports. And even if that is successful in closing off the port of Montreal, these groups will move to other ports. So we're going to need more and uh, it's going to have to come fast. Hey, Brian, thanks for the time today. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks a lot. You too. Brian Kingston is the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. We got a long way to go to solve this issue. That is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big day for both Donald Trump and Joe Biden yesterday. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in a case trying to keep Donald Trump's name off the 2024 presidential ballot in Colorado over his efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss. But it sounds like it went pretty good for the former president. Can you take the person that's leading everywhere and say, hey, we're not going to let you run? You know, I think that's pretty tough to do, but uh, I'm leaving it up to the Supreme Court. Reggie Cicchini is our Washington correspondent with Global News and joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Reggie, welcome to the show. Good morning. This is... Uh, from the Supreme Court's perspective, this is going to be a precedent-setting ruling, isn't it? Uh, sure, absolutely. This is uh, this is an untested matter in dealing with the insurrection clause in the U.S. Constitution to try and bar uh, somebody from running for or obtaining or seeking or reclaiming uh, the Oval Office because this is something that's never been used against a president before. And essentially what the two sides are arguing here is in Colorado's case, they're saying, look, Donald Trump played a role in the attack on January 6th and therefore aided and abetted insurrection. Trump's lawyers uh, are simply saying, look, he was never charged for insurrection, um, and therefore, you know, we can't proceed with this, but also the presidency isn't an office um, within the federal government, uh, and therefore he can't be barred uh, from holding an office that doesn't exist. So it's constitutional, it's legal, but the court seemed to be leaning towards Trump's team. So if the court, and I know this is hypothetical, but if the court rules in favor of Team Trump, does that automatically quash the same effort that's happening in Maine, or do they have to go through the same process? No. So Maine said that it would wait for whatever the Supreme Court decided. So if they decide against Colorado and say Trump can't be taken off of the ballot, uh, especially with some justices saying, why should one state be able to make this kind of determination? It is likely that Maine will say, look, the Supreme Court has made its ruling. Uh, you know, it may not be what we want, but ultimately it's going to be uh, what the new precedent is. And it's it's likely going to just kind of end this this push nationwide. Now, flip side, if they were to, you know, decide to side with Colorado, you'd wind up with copycat litigation around the country. When do we expect this decision to come down? Well, look, Mar the, the, the primary in Colorado is in March. So, I mean, time is of the essence here. The fact that this was fast-tracked within just a couple of months speaks volumes here. We may get a response here within the next couple of weeks. Again, that would be, uh, you know, this is, this is a court that moves kind of at a glacial speed. To get something within a couple of weeks like this would be huge, but it would also then allow for the campaigns and for the country to get back on track with the election process. Yesterday was also a big day for or current president Joe Biden as we continue our discussion with Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The president found out yesterday that um, a special counsel report found that he willfully retained and shared highly classified information when he was a private citizen, but concluded that criminal charges were not warranted. Um, a good day for Mr. Biden? 
a good day for Mr. Biden uh, and also a day for Republicans to claim that there's a double standard here when it comes to these kinds of matters, because Donald Trump obviously facing a far different outcome for his uh, handling of classified documents. But the report ultimately said that what what Joe Biden did, uh, you know, may have been willful. But at the same time, it took subtle digs at his age and his memory by saying that he presented himself as a well-meaning man with a poor memory and that that could gather or garner sympathy from people within a jury and make it difficult to prosecute. You know, Republicans are latching onto that, saying, look, we said Biden is old. We said that he has memory problems. Uh, Republicans and the former president are saying this is not fair because I'm facing charges. The difference, though, Rick, uh, is that Joe Biden cooperated fully. Donald Trump obstructed uh, and tried to keep investigators out of where the documents were. Also worth remembering that you can't uh, charge a sitting president. That's longstanding DOJ policy partly why they made that determination. Another part of this report, and you kind of referenced to it, the memory of the 81-year-old Joe Biden in this report calling it hazy, fuzzy, faulty, and poor. And then President Biden had a spirited news conference afterwards. I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president. I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. How bad is your memory? And can you continue as president? My memory is so bad I let you speak. (laughs) <laughs> Reggie, I'm sure uh, Trump's camp is going to want to capitalize on this. Sure, I mean, look, worth that that was a, a Fox News reporter that he was uh, that he was going back and forth with there. But well, well, the president was talking about he has, uh, you know, his mental acuity is not diminished and not fading. And look at what he's done in the past. At the same time, in that speech, when talking foreign policy, uh, he confused the leaders of Mexico and Egypt. Uh, and this is just a couple of days after he confused leaders of France and and, and Germany with with leaders that had been dead in some cases for more than twenty five years. So in the same news conference where he was trying to say he's on the ball, one slip of the tongue is all that that people kind of walked away with in this battle for him to try and push that he's still, um, you know, coherent and with it and able to run. Um, You know, so he's he believes that, you know, not only was he cleared that he can do this, there's going to be big questions, though, from within his own party and Republicans as to whether the memory matter is going to become a hurdle to clear again on this quest of the White House. Are American voters shaking their heads? I mean, these are the two options they have. It's funny. Uh, I did a story last week that 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 was the exact question, that there are so many people who say, how is this the best that we have when it comes to political leadership, one facing charges, one facing claims of being uh, too old and not having the greatest memory? At the end of the day, though, these are the options that America has. And, you know, whether or not that impacts turnout at the end of the year, whether or not any of the legal matters could also impact what the ticket looks like on the Republican side. uh, This is going to be a long, uh, difficult, uh, arduous journey towards November. America does this every four years. But, um, you know, however Americans decide in November, there's going to be criticism from both sides. Uh, If anything, we'll be grabbing our popcorn, maybe with a little extra butter. Reggie, appreciate the time. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you. Reggie Tacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, joining us in the U.S. of A. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Super Bowl Sunday is approaching, and many NFL pundits are expecting a close, hard-fought battle between the San Francisco 49ers, who've not won a championship since the 1994 season, and the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs, who are trying to win their third title in five years. But as good as the game itself is expected to be, there is another reason why Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas could go down as the most watched NFL final ever. 
And that is the Taylor Swift effect and the impact her relationship with Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey has had on the sport. One person has been keeping, well, uh, a lot of people, but one person in particular has been keeping tabs on this phenomenon, and that's our next guest. Olin Scott is an associate professor of sport management at Brock University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Olin, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good morning to you, too. Love or loathe Tay-Tay, the Taylor Swift effect on the National Football League this season is undeniable. You know, some estimates, $331.5 million impact on the Chiefs and the National Football League. You study media narratives. What do you make of the Taylor Swift effect? Yeah, it's kind of a confluence of some wonderful luck if you're the NFL and if you're the Chiefs in that one the biggest, or what I would describe as the biggest celebrity in human history, now that the internet and everything else is so big, has started to date one of the players. Both are very attractive. Both are very seemingly very nice people. And then as luck would have it, his team progresses to the Super Bowl. And I'm sure the NFL, its sponsors, and the broadcasters themselves are licking their chops and shaking their hands going, this is going to be the best Super Bowl ever because the entire world is going to for once be interested in this event. We've seen athletes date celebrities or renowned musicians in the past. Why is this one different? Is it because it is Taylor Swift? I, I think a lot of it has to do with who she is. I mean, she is one of the most popular musical artists of all time. She's a very, you know, seemingly very nice person, seemingly down to earth or as much as down to earth as someone of her stature can be. Um, and this kind of this this relationship kind of blossomed mid-season when she started to show up to the games and so mm -hmm. on. And people just got really geeked out about it. I mean, people follow her planes and people follow her all over the world to, you know, her concerts and so on and so forth. So this is just one of those those fortunate situations where the the biggest celebrity in the entire world is now dating this football player who's playing on an extremely successful team as well, who's progressing, as you said, once again to the finals, which makes things, which really ramps up people's excitement for this relationship as well. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Olin Scott, Associate Professor of Sport Management at Brock University. And we're talking about the Taylor Swift effect and its, uh, and its effects on the National Football League and, of course, Super Bowl Sunday in Vegas. Many of Swift's fans are preteens or young teens, which I'm guessing are going to want to check out the Super Bowl on Sunday to catch a glimpse of this you know, iconic musician. Once the TV ratings come out, I'm, I'm really going to be intrigued to see the age demographic breakdown. It should skew a lot younger, right? So the last few games that she's attended, the that 13 to 24 age group has had massive increases. We're talking 20 and 30% increases in what they normally would get. Just anecdotally, I'm having some work done on my house at the moment. And the electrician is saying his daughter is going to watch the Super Bowl for the first time and be with him because <laughs> she wants to see Taylor Swift. So you might see a lot of that, again, as you talked about the viewerships, where young kids want to spend time with their parents. And they might not normally want to do those sorts of things um, because they want to see her on the telecast. They want to see this game. And for the NFL, as I mentioned before, and the broadcasters and the advertisers, this new age group of people 
could be a really good market for them to capture because now you have a young generation of fans that might start to like your game. Linking back to the advertisers, just look at some of the companies that are now advertising during the Super Bowl Sunday, like Estee Lauder and L'Oreal. They are generally speaking, not advertisers during the Super Bowl stumping up $7 million in ad. But as this younger female demographic is really growing, these advertising slots now become fairly attractive for these sorts of companies who link along with the Taylor Swift effect. The league wouldn't admit to it, but do you think the top brass in the NFL, Commissioner Roger Goodell at all, are secretly hoping for a Chiefs Super Bowl victory and a post-game proposal because, Olin, that would blow the lid off this thing? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sure they're, they probably not even, they probably would say we'd love the proposal and they might even say that publicly, although it might embarrass both Kelsey and Taylor Swift. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I don't know that they would overtly cheer for one team to win over the other. Probably they might be more attracted to have, let's have a really close game so the viewers keep watching for the entire four hours. Now, behind closed doors, they might want those two things that you mentioned, although I don't think the um, the proposal would happen live on TV. I don't think she would be too appreciative of that, having seen her Netflix documentary and other things she says she's kind of protective for her for her private life yeah. but it would be something that would literally stop the world it would be one of those moments where you would ask your friends and family later in life where were you when and that could be that moment yeah that would certainly be probably the biggest non-football related happening in Super Bowl history I mean we had the wardrobe malfunction which made headlines for all the wrong reasons this would be you know that and you know times a hundred for sure yeah I mean already the viewership probably will exceed anything they've ever imagined and anything they've ever seen before and I also reckon that part of what this going to be they're really happy about is that the globe is now going to be much more interested in the Super Bowl because a typical Super Bowl gets around 100 million Americans. The, the record is around 113 million. And then the global viewership is around 150 million. So we're not talking a huge amount of viewers globally. Put her there and all her Swifty fans might be tuning in from Japan, from Indonesia, from Australia, from all these other places to see her. And so the global viewership of the Super Bowl could smash records um, just by her hopefully hopefully being able to make it in time. It has been fun to watch. It will be fun to watch on Sunday. Can't wait for it. Olin, thank you so much for your time this morning. Enjoy the day and the weekend. My pleasure. You as well. Olin Scott from Brock University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are grabbing a lot of the headlines as we draw closer to Super Bowl 58 this Sunday in Vegas. Fans of the music superstar are fawning over her every appearance, it seems, at a game, home, and away as this uh, romance has brought a new audience and a financial boost to the National Football League. And you know, I must admit, it, uh, it has been fun to watch. But long before Taylor and Travis were a thing, there was another mesmerizing power couple that blended the worlds of sports and entertainment. Here to talk about it is Fred Fromer, writer with The Washington Post, who writes about it in The Post. Fred, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? 
I'm good. Your uh, story in the post before Taylor and Travis, there was Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio, and I'm calling them the OGs of the sports mm-hmm. celebrity scene. Uh, what did you find out about these two characters? Well, I, I was really struck by the fact that there was a similar level of media fascination and pop culture fascination with that couple. Um, newspapers chronicled their every move. You know, this was obviously well before uh, cable TV, social media. Most people didn't even have TVs yet. Um, so the main way people got their information was newspapers and, and radio. And the newspapers really had a field day with this. Uh, so it was interesting to see how they were speculated about a marriage possibility, uh, speculated about their every movements, and and just were overall just very fascinated by the by the couple which was uh you know two of the most famous people in america at the time marilyn was a huge movie star she was an international sex symbol i mean this was her heyday the 50s and the 60s dimaggio was he was recently retired but you know one of the best baseball players in history uh, led the yankees to nine world series championships they end up eloping in 1954 but it was a rocky relationship right from the start Right, he he was pretty jealous uh, and didn't like the limelight that she uh, um, enjoyed um, during their honeymoon um, in Japan, which is ironically where Taylor Swift is uh, will be before the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> she uh, she was asked by a general in the U.S. military to to give um, a little pep talk or at least a presentation uh, to troops in Korea and uh, American troops. And when she came back, she told uh, uh, her her new husband, oh, "Joe, you've never heard such cheering before." And he said, "Yes, I have." Um, so he, <laughs> he didn't really like that. Um, he resented the fact that uh, everybody was so enthralled with her and he wanted a more traditional kind of marriage. And, um, you know, there's a lot of jealousy there and the marriage only lasted nine months. Yeah. Yeah. I knew they were married for only a short time. I had forgotten it was only nine months. And apparently the last straw, according to DiMaggio, was the infamous photo of the, the subway great scene. Right. Uh, this was, he had, happened to be on set for that. And, um, you know, that, that scene that you're describing where this gust of air comes up and blows up Marilyn Monroe's uh, blouse, you know, he, he stormed off after seeing that. So, uh, yeah, he really resented that. And um, and it really kind of cast a cloud over the marriage after, after that incident. Fred Fromer is our guest, writer with The Washington Post. He has a new story out about the uh, original power couple in uh, the sports slash entertainment scene, Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. And although their marriage was short-lived, it must have been a huge phenomenon. I mean, these were two of the biggest and and brightest stars in their respective fields. Yeah, uh, it, you know, there wasn't an announced uh, wedding as you as you mentioned. They eloped. Um, they wound up getting married at uh, City Hall in, um, in San Francisco, which is you know where DiMaggio is from. Uh, but as I alluded to earlier, uh, just in the days leading up to it there were these breathless reports about will it be a wedding in Las Vegas? Some Las Vegas hotel owner had already set aside a room for them. There was all this speculation. Um, and then when they did get married, um, even though it was uh, it hadn't been announced, uh, there were you know hundreds of reporters waiting outside and, and cramming the, there were people cramming the city hall uh, corridors. Uh, I mean, what, what I've learned is that probably someone from Marilyn Monroe's camp had tipped off the reporters. So uh, it wasn't an entirely private event. Um, mm-hmm. And that was probably by design from her camp. Um, but he, you know, DiMaggio was a much more private, uh, introverted person. So that, you know, kind of goes into the uh, the mismatch that they had from the start. Monroe uh, overdosed, sadly, in 1962 at the age of 36. Uh, what kind of impact did that have on Jolton Joe, who lived until 1999? 
Yeah, he was devastated by that. Uh, he wound up sending uh, roses to her grave for many years after that. Um, there was a, a story in the LA Times about him landing um, in Los Angeles uh, for the funeral, which he kind of took over the arrangements, um, and just grief looking, grief on his face. And, um, you know, they hadn't been together for, for quite some time, but he was still very, very upset about it, uh, as you might imagine. And, um, you know, it was one of those things is, it was, I think it's hard for him to get over. So Fred, uh, we, we love in sports to to rank things, to put lists together, <laughs> whether it's top 10 or top five or greatest of all time, whatever the case is. We've had a lot of sports slash, you know, celebrity, musician, model kind of cu- uh, couples. Uh, David and Victoria Beckham come to mind. Uh, sure. Tiger Woods and Lindsey Vaughn, Kiara and Russell Wilson, A-Rod and J-Lo, uh, Giselle Bündchen and Tom Brady, another famous one. Now Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Where do they rank in comparison with Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio? I have to put Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio at the top. You know, it's interesting to think back that not only was baseball the most dominant sport in, in North America at the time, um, but it was the only really team sport that mattered. You know, football and basketball really weren't on the scene yet. Add to that that DiMaggio was playing for the New York Yankees, playing center field, no less, for the New York Yankees. I can talk about uh, center stage. And then you have this glorious um, movie star. And yeah, other thing to keep in mind is there weren't as many entertainment options and anywhere near the amount of entertainment options we have today. You know, you had um, movies and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a little bit of television, uh, there is theater, but, and, and, and of course sports, but not anywhere close to what we have. So there was so much more attention being directed from them in terms of the, the percentage of people that were interested. So I just, I would put that at the top, uh, I, a little bias since I wrote a story about it, but that's, that's my honest take. And and uh, as you mentioned, I mean, there was no social media. There was no internet back then. It was newspaper and, you know, a little bit of radio. TV wasn't around and it was still huge. Yeah, it really captured people's imagination. Um, you know, uh, there was a quote from one of his teammates, Jerry Coleman, to the effect of like, you know, uh, you had the greatest girl in the world, the greatest woman in the world and the greatest guy. Like, what, what else could you ask for? And it, it did kind of seem that way on paper, but... You know, as, as we know, in, real, in life, uh, sometimes things that are on paper don't work out quite the way we think they will in real life. Very true. Fred, really appreciative of your time uh, today. Enjoy uh, the big game Sunday. And certainly uh, thanks for looking back at uh, Jolton Joe and Marilyn Monroe. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Have a good day. Fred Fromer, writer with the National or with the Washington Post, and has a great article on Monroe and DiMaggio. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.